Welcome to Israel Week in Review with your host, Ben Ronsman. Today is Sunday, June 27th. This program brings you a breakdown of this week's news from Israel. We go behind the headlines to offer listeners in-depth understanding and context to help you understand Israel and the broader Middle East. Israel Week in Review is brought to you by Origin Story Marketing. Search engine optimization is essential in today's business environment. To learn more about how Origin Story Marketing can help customers find your business, originstorymarketing.com. On the security front, Israel experienced a series of agricultural fires earlier this week. The fires were set ablaze from incendiary balloons launched by militants in Gaza. These fires have burned in the Eshkol region adjacent to the Hamas-controlled strip. These balloon attacks have been a tactic used by Hamas militants over the years. They've historically used this as an intermediary level attack that would not elicit the same sort of Israeli reprisal as rocket fire would. The fires interrupted a two-week cessation of violence with Hamas. Four blazes were ignited on Thursday. Ultimately, Israeli firefighters were able to get the fires under control. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett had been critical of what he termed weakness in the face of balloon attacks. Mr. Bennett has long argued that balloon attacks cause economic devastation, endanger life, and sow confusion. Consequently, he argued that they should be classified as acts of war and Israel should respond accordingly. He has argued that those launching the attack should be targeted by drones or sniper fire and that the Air Force should target strategic Hamas targets in the Strip in response. Mr. Bennett has argued that whether the attack is by rocket or incendiary balloon, whether the victims live in Tel Aviv or southern Israel, the Israeli response should be the same. He has repeatedly argued that Israel has an obligation to respond and the residents of southern Israel are not second-class citizens. Ultimately, Bennett did respond in a more forceful way than his predecessor. Balloon launching teams were targeted, and a Hamas facility, described as a weapons production facility, within the Strip was targeted. Attacks ceased for two days. Unfortunately, Hamas launched additional balloon attacks on Saturday and ignited another agricultural blaze in southern Israel. The Israeli Air Force responded by targeting Hamas targets in the Strip on Saturday night. The situation remains tense. While Hamas's tactics may often seem inscrutable to the outside observer, they do indeed serve a strategic purpose. Hamas is currently engaged in negotiations with Israel, moderated by the Egyptians, to strike a deal for a long-term truce. This is a way for Hamas to exert pressure on Israel during ongoing negotiations. For its part, Israel is insisting that two of its citizens, held captive by Hamas, as well as the bodies of two soldiers held in Gaza, should be released first as a goodwill gesture. The two Israelis held captive have documented mental health problems. Both crossed into Gaza for unexplained reasons. One of the captives is Jewish-Israeli and the other is an Israeli Bedouin. Their names are Avraham Avera Mengistu and Hisham Al-Sayed. The bodies of IDF soldier Hadar Golden and Oron Shaul have been held in Gaza since 2014. There are some unsourced reports which indicate that German diplomats in the Palestinian Authority and another team based in Berlin are helping to facilitate these discussions. Hamas seeks to lift the sanctions and blockade imposed by both Israel and Egypt on its territory. Israel has sent a number of high-ranking officials to help forge a more durable truce between Israel and Hamas. Egypt has expended considerable effort in facilitating these negotiations, in part because they seek access and influence in Washington. President Reuven Rivlin recently met with President Biden at the White House, and Prime Minister Bennett is scheduled to visit Washington in the coming weeks. From Cairo's perspective, the road to Washington runs through Jerusalem. There is speculation that Cairo hopes to have diplomatic success before Bennett travels to the United States. It is unclear if this will be possible. Hamas has successfully achieved extremely lopsided prisoner exchanges in the past. IDF soldier Gilad Shalit was exchanged for 1,027 Palestinian prisoners held in Israel. In recent weeks, Yahya Sinwar, Hamas leader in Gaza, has cryptically shouted the number 1111 to journalists. 
This may be his negotiating position. It is unclear that there is an appetite for another lopsided deal in Israel. While most Israelis are delighted that the captured soldier, Gilad Shalit, was given a second chance at life, many argue that such deals imperil Israeli soldiers and civilians by making them extremely attractive targets for capture. The new prime minister may not be able to accede to such imbalanced deals. How this will impact negotiations remains to be seen. Israel has also been concerned with the level of aid provided to Hamas by the Gulf state of Qatar. For humanitarian purposes, Israel has allowed Qatar to transfer cash payments to the Gaza Strip. At one point, it is estimated that Qatar was sending $30 million per month in suitcases full of American dollars. Those payments have not resumed, and Israel is concerned that funds are not being used exclusively for humanitarian aid, but rather to Hamas's military wing and leadership. Immediately after the last conflict with Israel, Qatar pledged $500 million to help rebuild the Gaza Strip. Israel is seeking to devise a way that this aid can go directly to Gaza's residents, rather than through Hamas. The United Nations has currently offered to distribute this aid, circumventing Hamas. Negotiations are ongoing at the time of broadcast. In diplomatic news, Foreign Minister Yair Lapid traveled to the United Arab Emirates to inaugurate an embassy in Abu Dhabi and a consulate in Dubai. This was the first time that an Israeli minister has visited the United Arab Emirates in an official capacity. There were previous plans for members of the Israeli government to visit the Emirates. Unfortunately, COVID-19-related travel restrictions and the inability of Israel to form a coalition government prevented such a meeting from taking place until now. Foreign Minister Yair Lapid was gracious to former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He credited him for working tirelessly to help bring the Abraham Accords to fruition. For his part, Netanyahu tweeted, Good luck to Israel's new embassy in Abu Dhabi. Mr. Lapid stated quite firmly that Israel was part of the Middle East and would not be going anywhere. He stated that all states that accept Israel as part of the region will see Israel's hand outstretched in peace. This insistence on the immutability of Israel's existence as the state of the Jewish people is very relevant to future peacemaking efforts. As long as the Palestinians refuse to acknowledge the Jewish people's historic ties to the region, instead focusing on conquering the land from whom they deem usurpers, peacemaking efforts will not progress. It should be clarified that Palestinian recognition of the rootedness, historicity, and reality of the Jewish state need not come at the expense of Arab claims to a deep historical connection to this selfsame territory. The Arabs first conquered the land of Israel from the Byzantine Empire nearly 1,400 years ago. They have deep, even ancient roots that cannot be denied. To recognize this fact does not invalidate Jewish claims. Like most intractable and difficult problems, this is not a black or white issue. Both sides have valid claims to indigeneity. This intractable issue, like many of life's most vexing problems, are an issue of right versus right. The remarkable nature of the Abraham Accords is that the ties between the United Arab Emirates and Israel in particular have been remarkably warm. Israeli defense officials have been surprised at Emirati sensitivity to Israeli security concerns. They understand Israel's challenging lack of strategic depth and vulnerability to terrorism. They share Israel's concerns over the Iranian regime. Despite the COVID-19 restrictions, many Israelis have already been traveling to the UAE in large numbers. The Emiratis have extended every courtesy imaginable, and Israelis feel very welcome there. Abu Dhabi is building a massive complex known as the Abrahamic Family House, consisting of a mosque, church, and synagogue. Within Dubai, a glock kosher restaurant has opened in the Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest building and amongst the most prestigious properties in the country. The Emiratis have recognized the small Jewish community of the Emirates, composed primarily of recently arrived expatriates. The Jewish community of three synagogues and approximately 150 families received security assistance from the government. 
The Emirates has recognized the chief rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda Sarna. He is a graduate of both Yeshivat Haratzion and the Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary at Yeshiva University. He has been the chief rabbi since 2019. Members of the rabbinate can perform marriages that are legally recognized by the civil authorities, like Muslim and Christian Emiratis. During the ceremony inaugurating Israel's consulate in Dubai, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed made sure that the participants received the highest quality kosher food rather than prepackaged meals that adherents of kosher laws have often come to expect at conferences. According to UAE Rabbi Levi Dachman from the Chabad movement, the UAE Armed Forces Officers Club reached out to him at the urging of the Crown Prince. Rabbi Dachman was given full use of the commercial kitchen facilities at the Officers Club, as well as assistance to make sure that the facility could be properly koshered. Specialty foods were provided that adhered to the highest standards of quality in kashrut. Moreover, when the food was being delivered to the reception, the crown prince insisted that the food be accompanied by a convoy of military jeeps. How's that for kosher supervision? Israel will be participating in Expo 2020 Dubai, a major international exposition focusing on opportunity, mobility, and sustainability. Israel will have a comparatively large pavilion situated near India and Italy. It will be open on two sides, representing Israel's openness to good relations with its neighbors. As its name suggests, Expo 2020 Dubai was initially supposed to take place during 2020. It has been rescheduled to begin in October of 2021 and last until March of 2022. In other news, tensions with Iran continue to mount. In reports that first surfaced in the Hezbollah press outlet, Al-Mayadin, a container ship previously owned by the Israeli-led company, was attacked in the Indian Ocean on Saturday. The ship, named the CSAV Tyndall, is registered in Liberia and did not have an Israeli crew. It was traveling from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia to Jabal Ali in the United Arab Emirates. There were no deaths reported and the ship was only lightly damaged. There are conflicting reports that it was attacked by a drone or perhaps naval commandos. At one time, 20% ownership of the vessel was held by Zodiac Maritime, a company owned by Israeli billionaire Eyal Ophir. According to reports in the New York Times, Zodiac Maritime sold their stake in the container ship nearly three months ago. This is either indicative of poor Iranian intelligence or a lack of suitable targets. The attack on the container ship is likely a response to the attack on a centrifuge production facility in the Iranian city of Karaj on Wednesday. Centrifuges are necessary to enrich uranium. The Iranians claimed that a drone attack had been thwarted by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. However, a private Israeli company named the Intel Lab released satellite photos showing extensive damage to the facility, contradicting Iranian claims. While the Iranians are currently in the midst of talks to re-enter the nuclear deal, the American Air Force struck two Iranian-backed militias in Syria and Iraq. Last week, the Iranian leadership, or Shura Council, in particular the supreme leader of Iran, Ali Khamenei, essentially handpicked the newly elected president, Ebrahim Raisi, by declaring most of the other candidates ineligible to run. Iranian elections have always given the Shura Council the ability to reject candidates from running in Iranian elections. However, the Shura Council has been using this power with an increasingly heavy hand. At this point, most Iranians no longer have faith in the electoral system. There is no daylight between Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei and President-elect Raisi. No one doubts for a moment that Ebrahim Raisi is merely a tool of the Supreme Leader. His absolute subservience has never been in doubt. Voter turnout was very low as the results were preordained. Many Iran observers believe that the Iranian political system is in the midst of a significant transition right now. The idea that there are moderates within the political system in Iran is rather fanciful. Only in a political system as reactionary as Iran's would a candidate such as president and Islamic cleric Hassan Rouhani be considered a moderate. 
Nonetheless, a cadre of ultra-conservative clerics, led by Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, have consolidated total control within the system. Previous office holders, such as former Speaker of the Iranian Parliament, Ali Larajani, former Vice President Eshak Jahangir, and former two-term President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, have all been declared ineligible. President-elect Ebram Raisi is known to be a thoroughgoing hardliner without any pretense of independence from the Supreme Leader. Many believe that the Iranian regime will simply dispense with the presidential system altogether, now that it has become nothing more than a fig leaf. It will be interesting to see if constitutional changes, recognizing what is already a reality, will take place. Aside from the ongoing negotiations taking place with the Americans about re-entering the JCPOA, Iran is also negotiating major trade agreements with Russia and China. The Supreme Leader and his advisors seek to complete trade agreements with those two powers. If they can just get American sanctions lifted, the regime will be able to survive. Some experts believe that it will require $60 billion per year to keep the regime afloat. If the deals proceed apace with the Russians and the Chinese, and the Iranians are able to get the American sanctions lifted, they very well may achieve this goal. Palestinian protests continue in Ramallah despite attacks by Palestinian security forces and counter-protesters. On June 24th, Palestinian dissident, activist, and PA critic Nizar Banat was killed by Palestinian security forces. Mr. Banat had been hiding from the Palestinian security forces at a home in Hebron, or El Khalil in Arabic. He had long been active on social media, where he criticized PA corruption, security coordination with Israel, and most recently the cancellation of elections. His last post criticized the PA's cancellation of a deal where Israel provided COVID-19 vaccines to the Palestinian Authority. An initial delivery of 100,000 doses had been delivered. The PA ultimately returned 90,000 of the doses, but kept 10,000 for the Palestinian Authority nomenclatura while leaving the Palestinian people largely unvaccinated. At approximately 4 a.m., Palestinian security forces entered the home where Mr. Banat was staying. They stripped him naked and beat him with batons in front of his family before taking him away. Within two hours, Mr. Banat was declared dead. Spontaneous protests began at his funeral in Hebron. In addition to Hebron, protests spread to Al-Manara Square in Ramallah. While Hebron is considered the most religiously conservative city in the Palestinian territories and a stronghold of Hamas supporters, Ramallah is easily the most secular and liberal city in the West Bank. It has functioned as the de facto administrative capital for the Palestinian Authority, and Mahmoud Abbas directs the PA from the Mukata compound in that city. Unlike previous protests, the current protesters are chanting slogans that have not been heard in the Arab world since the Arab Spring a decade ago. The people want the fall of the regime and Abbas go home have not been heard anywhere in the region since that time. This highlights the PA's crisis of legitimacy. Preliminary polling by the Palestinian Center for Policy and Surveys Research indicates that support for Fatah and Mahmoud Abbas has collapsed. Hamas would almost certainly win a resounding victory if elections were to be held. Nonetheless, Ramallah is the center of support for the PA. It's home to thousands of PA employees and those who benefit from its largesse. Remember that since the PA took control over 20 years ago, foreign donors have provided it with over $30 billion. Ramallah is the center of this power structure. That is why ongoing protests there are so disconcerting to the PA. As soon as the protesters began to chant for the departure of Mahmoud Abbas, riot police began firing gas and stun grenades. Counter-protesters armed with rocks and bats began to attack the protesters with the full approval of police. Plainclothes officers from the Palestinian Preventative Security Services also infiltrated the crowd, making detentions and arrests. Despite the harsh reprisals, protests continue and have even spread further. There are now daily protests against the PA in Hebron, Ramallah, and Bethlehem. Whether these protests expand further 
or slowly die down remains to be seen. The views and opinions expressed in this editorial represent those of the author. That editorial is not necessarily the view of Israel Week in Review. Israel Week in Review encourages editorial submissions. Editorials should be between 1,000 and 2,000 words and may be submitted to comments at IsraelWeekInReview.com. The recently formed Change Coalition intrigued observers of the Israeli political scene. In many regards, this is a highly unusual coalition. This government is composed of eight different political parties comprising the Israeli right, center, left, and even an Islamic party. The inclusion of the Islamic party Ram is perhaps the most unprecedented development in an already unusual coalition government. Arab political parties typically do not join Israeli coalition governments. That being said, historically the Arab parties have made arrangements with Israeli political parties in order to vote in support of them from the opposition. The government of Yitzhak Rabin relied on just such an arrangement in order to stay in power. This is actually the first time in Israel's history that an Israeli coalition government was formed with an Arab party as a necessary constituent party. Some might even call the leader of Ram, Mansour Abbas, a kingmaker. Hypocritical protestations from Netanyahu and the Likud that the current government is reliant on terror supporters can safely be dismissed as opportunistic claptrap. The fact remains that Benjamin Netanyahu invited Ram Party leader Mansour Abbas to the Prime Minister's residence, Beit Agion, on numerous occasions. He made multiple announcements to the Israeli public preparing them for Ram's inclusion in his coalition. It is undeniable that the only reason that Ram was not included in the coalition is because the far-right extremist party Religious Zionism, Hatsiyonut Adatit, objected on principle to sit with them. So who is Mansour Abbas? the head of the Ram Party, and what do he and his party stand for? The Ram Party is the political party that represents the southern branch of the Islamic movement in Israel. This party was founded by Abdullah Nimar Darwish. Abdullah Darwish was born in 1948 in the Arab town of Kafr Qasim. Kafr Qasim is an Arab municipality straddling the Israeli side of the Green Line near the city of Petah Tikva. Darwish was raised in Kafr Qasim, but in the immediate aftermath of the Six-Day War, he traveled to the Palestinian city of Nablus, where he completed his religious studies. When Darwish returned to Israel in 1971, he advocated a return to Islam and Islamic tradition. His ideology was largely shaped by that of Hassan al-Banna and the Muslim Brotherhood, founded in Egypt in 1928. In 1979, Darwish founded an underground organization called Usrut al-Jihad, Family of Jihad, with the express goal of founding an Islamic state in Palestine. In 1981, he was arrested with a number of accomplices and convicted for membership in a terrorist organization. He was released in 1985 in the context of a prisoner exchange with the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Surprisingly, upon his release from prison, he became politically active and made a case that Arab citizens of Israel should work within the system and not engage in violence. He gained some measure of renown for strongly condemning the killing of three Israeli soldiers by Arab citizens of Israel from Wadi Ara. Indeed, when the Oslo Accords were signed, Darwish supported them. He co-founded an organization called the Adam Centers for Dialogue Between Religions and Civilizations with Rabbi Michael Melchior, a former member of Knesset from the Maimad political party, itself a dovish national religious party founded to support the Oslo Accords and serve as a counterbalance to the increasingly right-wing National Religious Party. At this time, the Islamic movement of Israel split into two, 
largely because Darwish was perceived to be overly accommodating to Israel. The northern branch was founded by Sheikh Ra'ed Salav Um El Fakhm, who felt that an Islamic party should never recognize the state of Israel. They boycotted national politics and only ran candidates on municipal lists. Sheikh Ra'ed Salah ultimately became the mayor of Um El Fakhm. He has been recorded spreading the medieval blood libel, the contention that Jews ritually murdered children in order to use their blood to bake Passover matzahs. He also was convicted for raising funds for Hamas and orchestrating riots on the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Ra'ed Salah spent two years in Israeli prison. The northern branch of the Islamic movement was ultimately banned. Over the years, Abdullah Nimar Darwish and his followers were very critical of Israel. He even unsuccessfully attempted to reunite the Islamic movement. Nonetheless, his adherence to Sufi mysticism, commitment to interfaith dialogue, and religious justification for Islamic recognition of Israel made him a potentially transformative figure in Israeli-Arab politics. He argued strenuously for both his religious and nationalist identities, Muslim and Palestinian. However, his guidelines for engaging with the state of Israel open up the possibility for mutual respect and cooperation. They are as follows. I am a human being. I am a Muslim human being. I am an Arab human being living on my land in the state of Israel. I do not violate its laws. I do not denigrate any of its citizens. It is an unapologetic articulation of pride, recognizing the state of Israel while claiming his community's rights, living on my land. Within this statement, which only becomes more profound the longer one considers it, are the seeds of peace. Sheikh Abdullah Nimar Darwish died four years ago. Rabbi Michael Melchior was amongst his admirers who delivered a tearful eulogy. Mansur Abbas considers himself to be a disciple of Sheikh Darwish. Many have credited his decision to participate in Israel's coalition government with Darwish's desire to improve the lives of Arabs in Israel and to further the cause of Israeli-Palestinian peace. Abbas is a 47-year-old former dentist who has been described as a soft-spoken gentleman. He grew up in the city of Magar in the Galilee. Magar is a majority Druze village with large Christian and Muslim minorities. Growing up in this diverse city may help to explain why Mr. Abbas doesn't comport himself as a religious firebrand, despite his religious conservatism. By the time he was 17, he began delivering sermons in the peace mosque of that city. When intercommunal violence occurred in Israel during May's conflict between Israel and Hamas, Mr. Abbas helped restore calm. He urged people to stay at home and not engage in street violence. He also personally visited the mixed Arab-Jewish city of Lod, where he visited a synagogue that had been burned by Arab rioters. He vowed to raise funds to help in its repair. He also met with the mayor of Lod, who was widely disliked by the Arab community and urged mutual restraint and respect for law and order. In short, Mansour Abbas is a very brave man. He has subjected himself to considerable pressure and condemnation from many within the Arab community. I believe that he seeks genuine accommodation with Israel. He certainly seeks to better the lives of Israel's Arab citizens. He ran on a platform of traditional values, a desire to help stem increasing lawlessness and violence within Arab society in Israel, and economic opportunity and investment for his people. As the Abraham Accords develop and change the regional climate, Abbas and Ram may be assisted by the Emiratis in their quest to forge a durable civilizational peace. It seems that the presence of Ram may become one of the great strengths of the current government. Perhaps it is possible to extend the optimism of the Abraham Accords to Israel's Palestinian citizens. Could this development help Jews and Arabs in the land of Israel come to some sort of lasting accommodation? It is incumbent on us to try. 
This has been Yosef Main from Israel Week in Review. And this has been Ben Ronsman. We go behind the headlines to provide you with insight and understanding of the news from Israel and the Middle East. Israel Week in Review is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Remember to like and follow us on Facebook for daily updates from Israel and the broader Middle East. Israel Week in Review has been brought to you through the generous support of Origin Story Marketing, helping your business find its customers through search engine optimization. For a complimentary consultation, visit originstorymarketing.com.